0: My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talk to Derek. We cover quite a few different topics. We talk a little bit about online play. There's a game system that he's working on called Rad New World, and there's a link to that in the description. We talk a bit about resolving things with a single roll. We also talk about a rule that he likes to use. It just works. Then we talk a little bit more about player options and giving crunchy systems a try. And the episode ends with a discussion about online maps, some random generator tools, and virtual tabletops. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe and like or share the podcast with anybody that you think would be interested. If you haven't already, be sure to join our Discord server so you can come and chat and join in the discussions and the voting and get in on an interview. I also published a first draft of the contest submissions. I made a little PDF that people can use as kind of a source guide for uh, the Kuljanan, uh Desert Metropolis. So go ahead and check that out. Give me some feedback that is located on the Discord server as well. And if you're looking to pick up a new RPG book and you want to support the channel, head on over to either Amazon or DriveThruRPG through one of the affiliate links in the description and it helps support us and you get a cool book. Without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Welcome everybody, I have Derek with me. Derek, why don't you uh, tell us how you got started with tabletop role-playing games?
1: Hi. Hello everybody. Um, as stated, I'm Derek. Uh, I have been doing tabletop RPGs for a nice even 20 years now. Um, got started when I was 16 back in high school with an AD&D game. Uh, back when Thacko <laughs> was still the norm. Um, it played throughout high school uh, and kind of have kept the hobby going ever since then. Uh, groups change, but it's, it's been a constant in my life. And its I don't know if there's any more fulfilling or engaging hobby out there. Um, for anyone that plays, they know it, it, it sucks you in and it holds you. And it's, it's been a great standard to always fall back on. Uh, of course, with COVID and I had to move to another country. Uh, it's harder to do online, but hey, we have VTTs across the board. There's one for every flavor, so I've been able to keep it on, and it's been good.
0: Um, if I uh, can ask, what country did you move to?
1: I moved to Finland about five, six years ago now. Um, got married to a Finn, and the, the immigration process into the States was far more complicated, so I moved over here.
0: Cool. Were you enjoying uh, it over there at least?
1: yes uh it is it's very different i mean no duh of course but the the weather if nothing else is it it gets brutally cold Uh, summers are perfect um but yeah i i I like it a great deal here Um, the language is interesting and difficult all wrapped up in the one Uh, people describe english as kind of an inverted pyramid uh, in terms of learning difficulty, it's, it's very easy to start, but you quickly run into rules and more complexity as you go. Finish is the exact opposite. It is in immense barrier to entry. Uh, it's very difficult to learn. There's a ton of rules, and they affect everything. Um, so struggling with that, but it's, it's been an engaging journey.
0: Uh, I suppose now probably have to play mostly online then, right? If you're playing with people from the States? Yes,
1: um, I have tried to join up with uh, a couple of folks here in Finland, but it has been difficult because they are like two hours north of here. So, yeah, I've been on Virtual Tabletop for, again, five, six years now. Um, my group is, uses Roll20 primarily, but I'm trying to pull them over to Astral. Uh, it is, it, it takes a little more learning to start, but it is just a superior platform in almost every way.
0: I've been on Astral a little bit and played around with it. Um, There's a lot Mm -hmm. of customization that you can do, especially on the uh, Dungeon Master's side, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, entirely. Uh, But, of course, it's difficult when everyone plays Roll20. Everyone knows the system. It, It can be hard to pull them. But yeah, it, it, I I love Astro, uh, love to use it sometimes, uh, but more than, it, I suppose, it, along the lines with the VTTs and learning curves and such, um, I was never a big fan of kind of doing things remotely to start. Uh, of course, I, like many people, I preferred being at the table. You can see the people, you can see what they're doing, and multiple conversations have to be going on at the same time. That's no problem. When it's all over the wonderful intertubes, you can't have two people talking at the same time. So had to learn table control kind of on the fly, and there weren't tutorials for that yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, and especially... Like you mentioned, talking at the same time, it's kind of funny how, like, our our ears and everything can handle kind of separating sound from different spots at the table, and you can kind of focus in on, like, one conversation or jump to another one if there are multiple. But yeah, on a conference call or, or a Discord call or something, as soon as multiple people are talking to you, you don't have any of that spatial, like, awareness anymore. It makes mm-hmm. it a lot more difficult
1: yeah entirely uh, it, it and hey that's one tip that I, I would want to throw out to every GM out there who's doing things over tabletop um, it, when doing virtual tabletop, you have to learn to tell a player to shut up. Uh, it, it seems rude and horrible the first few times, but yeah it, it, if, if one player is cutting in with uh, chatter or, they're just interrupting you have to learn to tell them it's like hey wait your turn give player B a second to finish their thought or I'm not done explaining something uh, there's something along with this it's tricky and while it, most people get it as long as you're not like actively rude about it I think most players understand but uh, yeah free session zeros talk to your players about table control otherwise they'd Well, naturally, they're having fun, they're excited, they want to talk about the stuff. Uh, let them know ahead of time that it has to be one person at a time,
0: yeah. That's a really good point. And I, I typically, when I play, I'm only with two or three other people, and so far, haven't had much like talk over. Um, I think there's been a couple instances of it, but it was. A situation where you just kind of wait for them to fizzle out and then go back to whatever you were doing—it wasn't wasn't a constant problem, but yeah, the more the more people you have in a game, and then the more frequently you're playing, the more likely you are to run into that.
1: Yeah, yeah my usual group's the same way. We we seldom have more than four players, but um, at a play test for a system I've been building for many years now. Uh, I had seven players on a Google Hangouts call, and they—most of them were new, so they weren't—they weren't savvy to this. And I hadn't thought ahead of time that I have to tell people uh, that you can only talk one at a time. Uh, so that—that that took a little bit of struggle to get people used to it, but it, it worked out in the end, uh, and it was a hex—not a hex. It was a hex crawl, but uh, it was primarily a Kingmaker-style game. So I had plunked characters down with an objective, basically tame an area, and there was a lot of chatter about what they wanted to do. If there was, there were antagonists, and there were things going on, but for the most part, it was player driven. So they had to talk about what they want to do and who they want to do it with really straight things, and it it got real chaotic until uh, me and one other player um, kind of stepped in and said, okay, hold on, we have to structure this better. So, one at a time. Are you familiar with Gamma World by any chance?
0: I think I've heard of it, but I am not super familiar with it.
1: Okay. Um, It is a system, that a game that was built back in, I think early 80s, late 70s, right around kind of that Gygaxian era of d d being a, the first thing. And rather than doing a fantasy setting, it is a post-apocalypse. Um, but it's not Mad Max style where it, the nukes were 10 years ago, go scrounge in the desert. It's set hundreds of years after uh, an advanced technological civilization wiped itself out. So there are things like laser pistols. Uh, and characters are mutant animals, humans, plants. It, it, it was Gonzo, as all get out. And I played that back in high school with my then German teacher. He introduced us to his system, and I fell in love with it immediately. It was it was so new and fresh and bizarre that it it roped me in immediately. Uh, you could you had. In one adventuring group, you could have a bat with eyes around its head and antennas and psychic powers and then also have a, a human being with cybernetic augmentations and a laser pistol and a, uh, a big shrub walking walking around swinging a sword. And it, it was so evocative and peculiar and unique that it, it was great. But... It was built back in the 70s, so the mechanics were trash. It used Thaco, but also had science fiction armors and weapons that were obviously vastly superior. So you had weapons that gave you a bonus to hit if the target's defenses were basically artifact-level items versus uh, just being regular chainmail or leather armor. Uh, and it, it was a staggering amount of charts and arrays, and it was a mess. So I, early on, um, I had a group after high school, and we'd meet every Thursday, and we started to try to adapt the system to the uh, 3.0 d standards at the time. And it was fun. It was bizarre, and uh, we had If people genuinely looked forward, maybe not looking forward, they didn't mind when a character was killed. Uh, They wanted things to be high intensity, high danger, high lethality, because they wanted to come with a new character next week. They had they read through the list of available mutations and the idea of you know a monkey with tentacles and can that can breathe fire. Uh, was just so appealing to have to try. And then maybe the week after that they wanted to be a crab with I don't know, spider legs that could climb up walls and such. And it, it was an exciting new fresh thing and we just kept patting on and fixing rules as best we could and uh, while it, kind of the rest of my group at the time it, they enjoyed it but they didn't they weren't as into the and uh, how to fix and modify them. So it became my personal project. And I've been working on it up, off and on for two decades. Um, I, I, I'm proud of it. I like where it is. There's still uh, problems to iron out. But I'm hopeful that once I have it cleaned up and just finished, I guess, then I'm going to be putting it out online. Uh, probably just toss it for free on itch.io or something, and uh, open up a coffee account. So if people like it, they can toss me a few bucks if they want. But I just want to get it out into the environment. Uh, there's, it's more, it's a more complicated system than like fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. I'm kind of using that as the universal hallmark everyone knows about now. Uh, there's board. There's more mechanics. There's more chunkiness to it. I've tried to keep things still easy to learn and flow, and, but at the same time leave options for characters to do all the cool stuff that we did in Gamma World back in 2003. There's, I have, um, I think the counts up to about 112 mutations you can pick from, and it's broken into a class system so you can kind of develop your character as you want, as you go. It's, it's developed. Uh, I, think, I, I think people will like it. Is it, it. Anyone that spends time on the DM guild or uh, the dreaded R slash D&D, people are they're looking for more mechanical depth than 5th edition d d has. They're constantly trying to build new mini-games into uh, the system. They're trying to develop more advanced ways of doing X, Y, Z. And it, it's it always amuses me because it, it they take this very simple product and that's not fair not very simple but more streamlined easy to get into and they keep trying to make it old style D and D that just always amuses me to no end
0: I love it the game that you're working on based on the three D and D third edition rule set then.
1: No, not, not as such. 3 0 3rd edition had a lot of substantial problems. Um, if you have, like every time you leveled up, you had, what, like upwards of 18 skill points you had to distribute and cross class skills. I, I've cut a lot of that out. Um, at its heart, the, the, the actual gameplay loop is very similar to the D&D mechanic where you have skill checks and you have attacks if it's combat. Um, and I have it broken down into 20 skills. And each one has, of course, skill points that you can allocate to. I don't do any of the proficiency stuff. Uh, I've always found that really just so limiting. I mean, like uh, If you have, in fifth edition d you're either proficient and you will just continue to advance in whatever skill you have, or you're not and you're basically just rolling with your attribute modifier and you could until you find a way of gaining a proficiency in that skill you don't really have any way of representing your character practicing it uh, you, you could if you have a fighter that wants to learn to pick locks with the rogue they kind of want to be a, a thieves guild enforcer It's with multi-classing it, it's kind of tough to represent that in in the mechanics of the game so i have every single level up you, you get skill points put them wherever you want uh you also have um a different pool of level points that you can allocate to your different defenses um your, your armor for instance your basic like physical defense isn't based exclusively around are you wearing full plate or not uh you put points into it Your of course uh, dexterity or uh, another attribute intelligence can apply to your defense it, uh, if you were armor that certainly bolsters it but there's a mechanic to represent that your character has practiced dodging he is not an easy target because he has spent time and effort during uh camping moments or on the road to make themselves harder to hit
0: okay so i have i have like three things that i want to mention and we might have to take them yeah, each has their own question kind of um the first thing that I want to mention is that the just like the genre setting just and actually a lot of the mechanics really remind me of the fallout series mm-hmm. um post- apocalyptic skills you know allocating skill points all that just is is right up the the fallout uh, theme um the next thing I wanted to mention is. The, I mean, it's an interesting point that you make about proficiency and how, like you said, without multi-classing, it can be difficult to even, like, kind of train that skill. Um, the way your system handles it reminds me of the Fantasy Flight Star Wars games, which if anybody wants me to stop talking about those games, you guys just need to tell me to shut up about it because um, I just really like those games and they got a lot of good stuff in there. uh they don't have proficiency either they've got your main like um statistics or your attributes like strength and dexterity and whatever but then they have the skills and instead of having like proficiency you have ranks in a skill and then you can basically spend experience points to train to get more ranks which just makes you better at that skill right but you can train any skill that you want it doesn't it's not dependent on your class um the only thing is uh, your, I think it's your race, class, or no, maybe it's just your your class and your specialization gives you, lets you mark certain skills as career skills to say that you're like naturally inclined to learn those things based on what you do. Um, and that just gives you a discount when you're purchasing rank. So like it might be 10 experience to rank up in a skill, but if it's a career skill, it's only five. So... It kind of shows that proficiency, but it's also got like a way to allocate and train things. It just happens to be cheaper to train things that you would already be kind of good at. But you don't have to go that way either. Um, so with with your system, when you level up, do you get, uh, it sounds like you get like skill points every time you level up to allocate? Yep,
1: exactly like that. Uh, and. To, to tie back into fallback, fallout for a moment, uh, yeah, that was certainly I, I saw uh, a lot of that, a lot of the strength of that sort of system, and I have been inspired by it. Shall we say it, it's it's not a wholesale pull, but it was it helped structure a lot of things, um, and yeah, it's it, it, being able to customize your character it feels good. Uh, it'd be in Star Wars like the Fantasy Flight that's, it, it, xp XPY is a great system I'm a big fan of it uh, it, it's, it's, it I don't want to harp on 5th edition D&D all day because that, that's not nice but you level up a cleric and you go from 4th level to 5th here's what you get the end if you get a feat you get to pick that uh, you can pick your spells but there's there's not a lot of decision-making and decision-making is fun. Uh, the more and the more your decisions shape your character into where you think that character, that person is developing, it, it, that that's good stuff there. Uh, to answer your question, yeah, every time you level up, you get skill points. Uh, you also get level points and you get a new ability. Uh, there are... 125 abilities split amongst uh, five different focuses. So if you want to improve your use of social skills, uh, you have a list of abilities that can hold. And the abilities, whereas the skills are things you're just going to roll consistently. If you want to put more points into your persuasion skill, you get better at persuasion. Uh, Put more points into the skill, and you get better at lifting heavy things, throwing things, or breaking things down. Uh, hey, remember all those times in 5th edition, or at any D&D really, where you want to kick open a door, and maybe you want your character to be really good at kicking open doors, but you just roll strength check. You can get stronger later, but until that happens, you're going to get no better kicking open doors. I have a system for kicking open doors, using strength as functionally a skill. Um, So, yeah, you you get every time you level up, you improve not only what you want to do, but you also get cool techniques and little neat abilities that tie in with that. Um, With social interaction, uh, if you put, you take abilities out of the diplomat tree uh, during social encounters, you can do things like just interrupt and stop your opponent from speaking for a bit. Uh, You can cut them off and immediately just shift the attention of anyone listening. Uh, There is an ability that even if you fail a persuasion check to try to get an NPC to do something, the NPC will be persuaded to give you some small favor. Um, So there's the lying tree uh, based on deception. Uh, You can fast talk people and uh, one of the ones I'm particularly proud of while you're fast talking someone, they are fixated squarely on your character, and they're considered unaware to anything anyone else is doing. So if you have a thief and basically a con man working together, uh, you, can, you can steal a lot of things. You can sneak into places you're not supposed to go, and the guard will be not the wiser. So there's, and that's. If there is one thing that's kind of shaped my opinion of how RPGs should work, having reliable, kind of concrete role systems, be they for skills or attacks, whatever you want to do, allows players to know and expect what might happen. Right? And if you give them abilities, and cool things they can do during these encounters, during social interaction, during exploration, um, they look forward to that a lot more. Uh, D and social interaction is you talk to someone and you roll your skill check, and maybe if it's a really complicated, dangerous situation, you might roll a, a couple different types of skills. But there's not there's no mechanics to. Uh, to interrupt someone or to sway a crowd to your opinion and then they'll start working against the NPC that, that you're attempting to antagonize or get something to uh, The example I have in the, the rule set itself is if you are petitioning to the local baron in his court to help him uh, to cause him to rally the forces and go save a neighboring village etc. Uh, you can roll your persuasion checks against them, but you can also use these abilities from the diplomat tree to it basically rile up the crowd. Uh, any courtesan area, of course, uh, court members or peasants who might be in the area watching, uh, you can get them on your side and they'll apply pressure against the Baron as well. Or if you're unprepared or the Baron is simply more talented, they could just as easily turn the crowd against you. So it more mechanical depth, more tool systems, more options. Uh, they may take more to learn initially, but once you do, it opens up a world of opportunities that you might not otherwise think of. Uh, fifth edition D and D, you could certainly uh, ask your DM if you could roll your persuasion check against the crowd of people against the set DC to try to do the same thing. Rally them against the Baron. But if no one kind of presents you with kind of a hard and fast, okay, cool, you can do that. Here's a rule for it. uh, The DM has to make it up on the fly and players might not even really think it's an option. So I give them cool abilities and different options they can do in any given situation as a prompt to say, hey, here's cool stuff you can do. Have fun.
0: So are these abilities and different things that they can unlock, um, that's not part of, like... So I want to say not part of the main rule system, but, like, these are just, like, additional, like, feats almost that you can can add in, right?
1: Yes. Um, in terms... It, there's an aspect of it that's just normal rules, like social interaction, uh, social encounters, rather. The... Uh, any NPCs present, or there's kind of a pervasive mood. I'm still fishing for better term, but mood is what I'm sticking with now. Um, that it can be either apprehensive or uh, distrusting, hostile, or jubilant if it's a festival, something like that. And if a player can basically work off of the general mood, they get bonus check, and uh, their success or failure carries weight. And they can also spend checks to change the mood uh, if you're in a courtroom situation and everyone is uh, angry because their local merchant has been robbed and your player characters are trial for that they can attempt to basically redirect the suspicion onto uh, another npc or if they're uh maybe they'll try to sway the mood from suspicious pcs to uh, resentful towards the nobles by pointing out that, oh, sure, the that shopkeeper was murdered, but he wouldn't have had to been murdered by the obviously poor and desperate criminal if the nobles were giving their money to the people. So maybe we should lower taxes. That sort of thing. So you have the core encounter rules for social interaction such. There's more uh, default options to play with. And then if you take these uh, diplomacy abilities you gain even more capabilities and you have more impact
0: yeah I think that was a good description because like you said there's actually uh, like with the mood or whatever there's another layer of mechanics there that you've added that wouldn't necessarily exist in like a DD game like it, it would exist but more in like a The dungeon master says there's this general feel about it but there's not like direct mechanics to uh, move levers or anything at that level right unless you just just roll a check and then maybe the DM lets you do it or not but here you have like a concrete this is how mood works and now here are abilities that let you play with it or benefit from it um, that sort of thing
1: yep exactly and that's that's always when I try to, I suppose, uh, pitch crunchier systems to people. This is exactly the sort of thing that I think is the big advantage uh, to crunchy systems. If you have more rule structure, it allows you to kind of reach out further. And it, put, it takes a lot of the work off the DM. Uh, if, if you have a player character that wants to throw a halfling across the river, this edition d the DM kind of has to arbitrarily pick, okay, what's the DC for that? It's a halfling, they weigh I don't know, 40 pounds, and it's a river 15 feet wide, so I, I don't know, 20 sounds good, we'll go with that. Whereas if I can present a system that says, okay, here's your force check, and for every one above the DC 12 you roll, you get an extra foot, then the player can know ahead of time Okay, I have to. If I want to do this, I have to roll a 13 because my modifier is six. It, it gives them more structure to try to plan and do things, that, do interesting things. Downside, again, is there are things like charts. Sometimes you have to consult a quick chart. And I try to make it as easy streamlined as possible, but it takes more to learn.
0: And the DM could always fall back on just like if they're not super clear on what the rule is and they don't want to look it up or look, you know, don't have time to consult a chart or something. They could just always fall back to, we're going to make a check, set a difficulty and then just roll against it.
1: Absolutely. And that's, that happens a fair amount. Um, And that's, I I think that's perfectly fine. I even mentioned in the uh, framework of the GM's guide that if looking something up is going to break up the flow, if people are really into the moment, uh, just let them roll. And if it's, you think it's a good enough roll, just run with it for the time being. Yeah, go with it.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that's this, smart because that there would be a barrier there if you're adding extra mechanics into these various uh, places, but being able to just always fall back onto a single I mean and and this is for most RPGs too right pretty much any action can be boiled down to a single role I mean there are games that'll say hey if the battle if there's like gonna be a conflict and it's not really super engaging you can just make a role based on the enemies and the players abilities and just resolve the entire battle in one in one role right and yeah really this is the same way if you you're providing additional layers of um, mechanics or systems that if it makes sense for the situation you can zoom in on it and use it and play with it and if it's not important then don't worry about it like in the uh, you mentioned like a trial or something the mood of the area is probably super important so you probably would focus on that but it may be less important if you're just Talking to a shopkeeper or something, right? So, use it as a tool when you need it. Exactly, and that's good. keep
1: everything flexible. You know, keep the tool available. Don't be beholden to them. Um, because yeah, there's there's always a degree of if, if the player comes up with this really cool idea and they have. It's a great plan and it involves throwing a player a character and they have to catch on the chandelier and then swing over while someone else is, I don't know, juggling torches, but someone is discovers that, oh, hey, swing on the chandelier, the DC for that chromatics check is going to be too high. The DM can always say, yeah, but it's a really cool idea. We want to see how that plays out, so don't worry about the strict DC, we're going to go with the DC 14 Have fun with it. Or even, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of it just works. If a character is, particularly if a character is proficient in the skill, if they have spent ranks, skill ranks, to increase the skill, and they have abilities, they're dedicated to swinging on the chandelier. Um, if there's no reason see that there could be a complication, just do it. Don't even roll. Just move along and it succeeds.
0: Uh, one of the other and, parallels that I kind of drew from this was um, with, with an anybody can attempt anything, right? Like you don't necessarily have to be proficient in it or whatever, um, but with your abilities, ideas, and adding more concrete ways to interact with mechanics of the game reminds me a little bit of um in dungeon world the fighter has a move uh, i think it's bend bars and lift gates which just deals Mm -hmm. with breaking through stuff better than other people and when you first look at it it's like why does the fighter need a specific move to do that thing when they could just do roll like a defy danger which is like your generic check to just do something um but when you have those concrete that concrete ability it's kind of setting the terms for the the fighter because the fighter knows what the outcome and and typically gets to pick the outcome of the move depending on how they roll Um, they get to pick a couple options whereas if if some random person just decided to try and break down um a gate they have no options if they're just rolling the generic check. It's just whatever the DM says. So having those like specific abilities, anybody could attempt to do anything that's on these abilities. But when you have something concrete, you know at least like well, at least if I fail, this happens, or I still get this benefit, or uh, like you mentioned, drawing um, when you're fast talking somebody, you draw everybody's attention. Like that's you could attempt to do that as somebody else, but this person with that ability can just do it. Very much,
1: Uh, and also it's another point I think that's important. Uh, Fifth Edition D&D has its core difficulty scale. I think is ultimately set too low. It's a little too tight. Uh, It's like really difficult things. You have to you have to get a result of twenty. line impossible things are 25 and I think the highest skill DC you're ever really gonna run into is 30. and that's like legendary actions and incredible things that people talk about for years. And the problem is when everything for the most part is set from 1 to 20, you can have uh, like the barbarian is attempting to lift and hold the gate, but just they roll badly and there's not enough ways to increase their uh, strength modifier for this particular skill, so they just they can't lift it today. But the wizard decides, "Ha! I'll give it a try. And he just rolls a 20 and can do it. When... And that, that can lead to funny moments. Uh, in, in, in the inverse, the wizard fails the reconna check, but the barbarian just rolls really well and succeeds. It, it, it's funny, but if you're that character that failed their attempt just because they rolled poorly and then some rank amateur comes along and shows you up that doesn't feel very good so I have uh, I've kind of increased the DC range that people will need to roll against uh, really difficult things still are 20 but the impossible tasks are closer to 40 and if you have a character that is focused and you get to a high level, and you poured your abilities into this, there can be circumstances where you roll with a plus 18, plus 20. And you can get those modifiers in, relatively early in your adventuring career. And you get, I do level one to 10, it's, it's, it's arbitrary, but I like one to 10. Once you hit around fifth level, you can have a skill modifier that is approaching, if not at, plus 20. So the mundane things, you can just blow through the check. And indeed, in cases like that, I don't even have to bother. It, the player shouldn't even bother rolling; They're going to succeed. Just going to become, uh, I'd have them roll only if there were a circumstance where uh, they get a spectacular success, like 10 above the DC, they've succeeded and something special happened. And it also kind of gates off the incredible uh, actions to the people that are exceptionally incredibly talented. Uh, there will be no even if the Weasley little intelligence based character rolls a twenty, they still might not be able to lift up that iron gate. It's just it's it's too heavy. It's not possible for them. So it it gives players it. it It rewards specialization. If you get yourself to the point where you are literally incredible at this task, building things, or uh, knowing how psychic powers work, or just lifting heavy things, you can lift up a house. Not over your head, but if you get a good grip underneath the foundation and lift it, and you can reliably beat a DC 35... You can be the guy that flips over houses.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like how you have that system set up to uh, avoid having, like the, like you said, like the wizard like just walks in and is like, oh, I can do it. Um, I, I think one thing that I've seen, at least for like, if you're playing D&D, I've seen people say, if you're trying to do a skill check and you're not proficient in it, then you like just rolling good isn't necessarily enough or like if you roll like a natural 20 or something that doesn't necessarily mean that you just did it um so i've seen people say if you're not proficient in something then you can't attempt it or like the barbarian identifying a magic item like they have no knowledge of magic items so what kind of insight would they have into some device that they found um and then... But is that?
1: But I would ask: Is that written
0: in the book, or is that
1: something that a, a DM is, particularly first-time DM, that's something they're going to have to intuit themselves, or they're going to have to watch a video from Matt Colville to have picked up that information?
0: Yeah, I don't think it's in the book. Um, I've seen it from Matt Colville, and I think a couple other people have mentioned using it. But then that also kind of goes back to the. Um, situation that we talked about before where anybody really should be able to attempt anything but people who have you know obviously dedicated time to learning certain things should be better and more consistent at it and you could also in this case even lean on the uh, automatic success that you mentioned right so in the case of like identifying a magic item maybe the wizard being proficient in arcana is enough to let them just identify it, right? The barbarian could maybe try, but the wizard just can.
1: Uh, Also, I I just realized I never mentioned, uh, the game is currently working under Rad New World. Um, I have a a Tumblr blog where I talk about the mechanics and such. If anyone's interested to learn more, um, radnewworld.tumblr.com. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible hell site, but uh, it it's free. Yeah, sorry, um, and yeah, it, it more than anything, like this is this is the strength that Crunchy Systems offer, and I think it's it's worthwhile. It, people shy away from them; they don't like seeing a rule book that have charts. They don't like having to kind of learn a deeper system but I, I think it's it, it's easy evidence of how much people try to complicate simpler games like D&D uh, that there is there are advantages and there's there's a depth that a, a more robust rule system offers so I, I would strongly encourage people more than anything else, don't be scared of crunchy systems. The uh, old-school Renaissance, the OSR, are basically people who still play like advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and they've made modifications to the system to bring it up to slightly more standard uh, rules. Like most of them do away with the—I think it were, what eight different saves: save versus death, petrification, poison, blah blah blah. And we don't really need that level specialization. So they, they tend to cut those out and just go with, here's your formula to save. But uh, the deeper rule sets are not to be avoided. Give them a try. You might like them.
0: And I think as uh, for players, I mean, I really like systems where there's a lot of ability options. So again, the Fantasy Flight games have a ton of um i think they call them talents in there um and they're not you know they're comparing it to like D and D they're not as big as something like a feat would be because especially in D every ability it, since you don't get a lot of them they're all very yeah. specific or impactful whereas with the talents it's usually like a little a small bonus here a small bonus here a neat ability that you can do and i think that's why people are sometimes drawn to those systems is because there's just a ton of options for being able to really tailor your um character a certain way right so like one fighter um or so let me think of this in a a career so like a bounty hunter for example the Mm -hmm. bounty hunter has like a talent tree that they can go from that they can purchase talents off of and as There's like multiple sections of the tree that you can start in and work down. So two bounty hunters in the same career and specialization may have completely different talents depending on which ones they focus on. So they may play very differently even though it's the same tree, right? Whereas like two rangers in um, 5th edition, if they're the same um, specialization, so if they're both... Um, like Beastmaster or something, if they're both beastmasters, besides like the spells they picked and the animal companion that they have, like they're probably gonna play pretty similar because they have basically the same abilities, right There's less customization, yeah. and I think that's also why people like systems like the cipher system because that's like all abilities like the whole book is just different abilities that you can purchase for your characters.
1: I, I personally love the Cypher system. Um, Numenera is 100% my jam. Uh, and I have it, one of my regular players was on the show previously, Joe. Hi, Joe. Um, Joe and I both really enjoyed Numenera. But the rest of my group, a lot less so. Um, and, and yeah, as you said, it's Numenera. Each class is like a vague suggestion. And then you just pile on stuff you want to do. Are you familiar at all? It's like I know the core rulebook for um, Cypher and Numenera had X number of abilities, but I think in the default Cypher system, the Arcus is a class. Are you familiar with that at all?
0: Uh, I've only briefly... I kind of briefly skimmed it just to get ideas and just to kind of understand the system, but I've never run it, so I'm not super familiar with anything in it.
1: That's fair. I'd suggest it. Uh, but in, in Cipher System,
0: uh, there is one ability where the
1: Arcus can spend effort, and they basically tell the DM, uh, no, hold on, something else is happening entirely." Uh, it, there was uh, Unmade Gaming had a streamed game, and the player characters were trying to light a fort on fire, but there was a storm coming in soon, and so the DM telling him. And was like, "Hey, you know." You, you could try, but the rain's going to put it out, so it mightn't be worth the effort. And one of the players at Anarkis spent the effort and just said, "No, no, the storm's not going to blow it for another two hours because I'm the DM now."
0: That's awesome. And, uh, it,
1: yeah, it, it's it's a delightful system, and once you understand how to spend effort, it's so easy and so flexible. But learning how to spend effort is uh, not easy. It's very very poorly explained in the core book.
0: Yeah, I had to watch a couple of videos to really get a basic understanding on how that system plays. Yeah, entirely. Uh, And that'll be easier. Um, uh, Joe
1: actually in one of our conversations had mentioned uh, also, and this is where a lot of crunchy systems fall flat and they've got a bad reputation. You have to explain things. In a way that is both very flavorful and interesting, and technical and easy to understand, uh, it's serving two very different masters, and uh, it's that makes it very difficult. Uh, and it's, it's something I struggle with my with my own handbook because there are I have to explain these rules in ways that it, that is easily grasped, and the examples have to be fun and interesting. Or people's eyes will just glaze over, and they'll stop paying attention, and they'll go play something much easier.
0: Yeah, that's not an easy balance to strike between technically informational and also entertaining.
1: <laughs> yeah, how does that? Uh, does uh, Fantasy Flight Star Wars do they find a, a good balance there?
0: Um, I'm trying to think. The I I know the system really well, so I. I haven't really read through the, like, core rules in a while. Um, I think the one thing that they maybe struggle with is, I mean, they, they really, really go into depth on, like, all of the different dice that are used in the dice Ooh-hoo. pools. And and some of it, like, you can learn a lot of it pretty quickly with just, like, a a high-level overview and then just kind of, like, Learn to understand what each dice is after the fact. I think they maybe do a little bit of over-explaining too soon, before you really kind of understand the system, because they're trying to they're trying to explain it from like, okay, if you know nothing, I'm gonna explain everything to you, and then we're gonna put it all together at the end, so it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. But I think in a lot of cases, like when you don't know what the end result is, and you don't know what each of the pieces is for, it can be kind of like boring to like I don't really care what this yellow dice is for cuz I don't know what I don't know what we're doing with the dice yet right but if you give them like the basic okay so you you get a dice pool you know green dice are your ability dice yellow dice are just upgraded versions of that which are you know those are all your positive dice for your skill checks and then the DM gets to add in purple dice which are the difficulty dice and then red ones are just upgraded versions of that and then you roll them all together cancel the results <laughs> and and then that tells you what happens right now you can dive into more information about like ability dice or boost dice or proficiency dice and what you know different symbols they have on them but without that like what am i building towards it it, i think feels like it can be a lot of over explaining and it might be in that order but if i remember from just paging through the book i'm pretty sure they talk about all of the specific details first and then bring it all together, and by the time you get there, you're like, eh, I just don't want to read it anymore.
1: Yeah, that, that does sound like a bit much. Um, I I, really, no, I love the idea of dice pools, in theory, uh, but I keep finding that virtual tabletops just don't really have a good way of simulating it. Uh, it, it does Fantasy Flight uh, Star Wars have a lot of support on places like Roll 20 and... Uh, tabletop
0: Foundry and the rest. So roll roll twenty, I believe, if you have the like paid subscription or whatever, you they have integrated character sheets that can handle the dice rolling. Um I don't pay for a subscription, so I've never used it, so I, I don't know how good it is. Um The site that I have used for running games, it, it's kind of a combination of character sheet and dice roller um yeah what is that called now i haven't I haven't used it in a while um i'll have to look up the name of it i'll put a link in the show notes But basically you can build your character and you can set up talents and everything and then you can so you can kind of manage the character sheet portion and then you can like join a table um and then you can basically pick from your skills That'll just pull in your stats and all of your bonuses and talents and whatever you know additional stuff applies to it. It'll pull in your like base dice pool immediately, and then um, you can also add more dice too, right? So like in the case of you have some advantage, the DM will give you a boost dice. Um, that's not going to be included in your like base, you know, roll. So then you can you basically pick your ability, add any additional dice you want. The DM will tell you how many of each negative dice to add for the difficulty, and then you just roll it, and then it'll just tell you what the results are. Um, hmm, okay. So, it makes... So, the one thing that's nice about online rollers, specifically for that system, is kind of twofold. One, being able to pull everything in from your character sheet is nice, because um, your skills and... Or the way that the dice pools are calculated is based on your ranks and your skills and your Attribute, so, like, your strength, for example. Um, But then there are also, and that's pretty standard, but there are also different, like, equipment and different attachments that you can get on weapons and stuff that will change, uh, that'll give you, like, extra boost dice or something to a roll. And on, like, a regular character sheet, like, if you had it printed out, it's not always easy to, like write down like this is what my weapon skill is but when I use this weapon I get to boost dice and it's easy to forget some of those modifiers where this will keep track of those additional dice that you get Um, so that's nice because you can just click it and it just gives you all your dice and then the other one is that um, it's really fun to roll a lot of dice at the table but it is sometimes less fun to do the cancellation and that can kind of slow the game down a little bit um, until you're until you get pretty good at, you know, reading all of the dice and just knowing how to cancel everything. So the nice thing about the online rollers is it'll show what all of the dice faces were, but then it'll just say, here's your result. You got three successes and two threat, right? So then as the DM, it's really easy to just go, boom, I know exactly what you rolled. I don't have to do the mental cancellation. Um, The only thing that's a little bit less fun is when you're at a physical table, it's just really fun to roll a fistful of dice every time you do something, <laughs> and you don't get that oh. same tactile feel when you're doing it online.
1: Yeah, that that's very true. Um, uh, there was a, back in high school, pretty briefly, tangent, I guess, uh, we played Dragon Dice, which was a little kind of dice-based war game with fantasy races and everything. Uh, but yeah, it, it was always very cool to pick up like 15, 16, six sided dice of different sizes and just splatter them across the field. Yeah, that's it. Math stones go clicky clicky and we like the sound.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, that's probably the one thing I miss the most of playing those games. But there are so many other benefits of having the online dice rollers that I, overall I think is easier to use the virtual rollers. Um, the the other the other pain though is being you have to do all of that characters setup and have that you know all configured correctly so that it can pull all of the data in for you whereas with like a d and d sheet it's like okay I have I roll a d twenty and I add six you know that's a much faster lookup to do you know either online or just physically than it is with the dice pool systems
1: yeah. Um, When the horrible plague does pass us over and back to playing, hopefully, at tables, uh, even if I had a local game, I would still want to include a virtual tabletop just for maps. Uh, I I love them. I love making modifications to them, putting tokens on them so you can move stuff around, setting up interesting situations, and being able to just point... Theater of the mind is fun. Uh, but anytime you have like distance matters, we need to know exactly where that fireball is going to land, or we need to know how far that mutant cricket can leap. Having the map and the tokens on it, and everyone can see like the auto measuring tools, I, I, I don't know how it will be integrated into the next time I play the table, but I absolutely want to keep that tool. It is so valuable.
0: I 100% agree. I love having maps, even for, you know, I know a lot of times it's battle maps, but even for non-combat situations, it can be really nice to know just where characters are. Um, And something I've mentioned before is I wish there were more maps that were just bigger and had more stuff in them um, because I like being able to just kind of prep an entire location essentially and then dropping the players in and letting them just kind of explore it and inter- interact with it that helps me take some mental load off of me um, because it, the stuff is just on the table or it's on the map right so I don't have to try to keep track of all of it
1: one sneaky tip I would recommend um, it, it probably won't work as well for star wars um or even maybe d d but if you need like a larger field map. Uh, there are people that post aerial drone photography pictures all over the internet for free. So if you ever need um, a, a, like a large scale battle where you have armies and the droid army and the fish people whose names I'm forgetting. They threw the blue balls around. Whatever. If you want to set that up, uh, just do a Google search for aerial photography field or forest or river. And you can find some great, free, easy assets you can just drop in and have a map that's, you know, a mile and a half wide.
0: Well, and those wouldn't have grids on them either in most cases, so they should be pretty easy to throw onto Roll20 or your virtual tabletop of choice.
1: Yep. Uh, Also, if any people are making maps uh, and they're listening, um, please... Please, please include non gridded versions. It's,
0: so much easier. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's so much easier. We all are playing tabletops now, folks. It, it's just it's standard now. So you know, let us use it. Uh, we'll we'll go to your Patreon. I, I probably drop uh, twenty-five bucks a month on uh, Patreon for map makers and uh, simpler asset creation. Um, there's money. Just you know, stop gridding as default, please.
0: I think it's crazy how how many and how big a lot of the map makers have gotten, which is really cool to see. And I think it's probably only gotten bigger because of the pandemic and everybody is shifting to that style of play, but having those assets very readily available online is really nice.
1: Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. We've it it partly due to just how many more people are Playing these games now, uh, the number of available assets to and tools uh, it, we have more stuff now than we did back when, like I was first learning these games. Uh, and there's, it, it's always great when you think, oh, you know, it'd be really nice if I had blah blah blah. blah. If you punch it in Google, it's probably already there.
0: The magic of the internet—it already exists. <laughs> it, yeah. Entirely.
1: Um, uh, Don John is one of my favorite websites. It's, if you need a random blank, it's on there. Random NPC, random uh, magical stuff, random sci-fi themes, magic, random planet. Uh, they have... A, one of them that I needed on the fly, and it was there, was random facial hair. And it, it, it was there.
0: That's awesome. Um, perchance is also a good um website for uh random tables they've got a lot of stock stuff but you can also build your own which is pretty cool um and you can get pretty technical in the syntax with it you can you can say like here one of my options is a pouch of coins and then you can set like it's a range of this many coins to this many coins or and, and you can just do all sorts of basically like replacement of of values but it's Especially as a programmer myself, it, I can get sucked into that pretty quick. <laughs> yeah.
1: See, yeah, I'm the flip side. Uh, I do scripting for a proprietary language, it doesn't matter. I basically do that for work. And when I'm doing my hobby stuff, just the idea of trying to go in and change the variables and set the right syntax and then troubleshoot it just, uh, no thank you. I can't do it.
0: Yeah, it's second nature to me, so I guess that's why I, I uh, have fun with it. Um, back yeah. on your virtual tabletops to um, in a home game or in an in-person game, um, I've toyed with the idea of either taking a spare TV and building like a little, um, either a full table, which would be super cool with the TV in oh, it, yeah. or, um, or maybe at least like put it in a little insert that can be like set on top of a table to turn any table into a gaming table uh would be cool or mounting a projector somewhere but i just don't i don't have anywhere that i specifically know that i can dedicate to like a dnd gaming room yet so um i've been hesitant to start uh to buy a projector or anything yet
1: yeah yeah uh it, i i absolutely long for the same thing uh it, it, there's a youtuber why locks uh armory i think uh where he does he crafts all sorts of stuff for war games and D &D, and he built his own table and oh man it's gorgeous i want one of those too Uh, i I don't know if if my wife is also into throwing dice so i don't think it'd be a terribly hard sell but at the same time we just we don't have space currently so uh, want maybe later
0: one thing I did see... Uh, I think it was maybe like this week. Um, I think it was, it was on Reddit somewhere. I probably won't be able to find it. The guy used a projector... Um, to, you know, project onto his table. And he had it... Um, he had it like mounted kind of off to the side of the wall. And then it was projecting down. So you have to get a certain projector that you can change the like shape of the lens. Because it's skewed funny since it's at an angle. Um... But one of the things that he did with it was since it was being projected he had like a uh, like a paper statue or something that was kind of on the map and then he used the projector at a certain point to have like an animated image or something on like projected onto the section where that um, statue was so it made like the statue was had light projecting on it so it had like the face and stuff and could like move because it was part of the projection and not part of the like a static prop which was just really a neat way to combine like the physical and the projection into one kind of scene
1: yeah that's that's wild uh and yeah again uh, another aspect of more people lobby uh there's more creative people uh, and I there was it might have come from it, it might have been somewhere entirely, but a guy who had been ending this twentieth level campaign and they were fighting some horrible cosmic horror, and he built a mini that was it had to be like three feet long. It' was a giant toothy thing and yet lights going and the fog machine, and he just ten out of ten presentation.
0: You gotta love all of the creators out there.
1: I will be looking for playtesters in the near future. Uh, So if anyone thinks the ideas behind Rod New World are interesting, or if you want to play a mutant spider with swords for hands, uh, drop me a message on Discord or on the Tumblr blog, and we'll get you set up.
0: And feel free to post uh, playtest sessions or whatever on the Dungeon Master's Toolkit site, as, or the server as well. Um, I think a lot of the DMs are always interested in, in trying new systems, uh, myself included. So um, feel free to drop comments there if, if you think people would be interested.
1: Absolutely. I'll do so. Thank you very much. It was great talking with you.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.